Welcome to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers' Fest. The Vancouver Writers' Fest connects people to exceptional books, ideas, and dialogue through year-round programming that ignites a passion for words and the world around us. I'm Leslie Hertig, Artistic Director, and I'm very happy to share Her Image on the Mirror, a tribute to Mavis Gallant, a night that was created by author Bill Richardson in collaboration with renowned actors Nicola Cavendish, Gabrielle Rose, and performer Alessandro Giuliani. This event was recorded live and performed at the York Theatre on October 23rd, 2022. The Vancouver Writers Fest carries out its work, including this event you're about to listen to, on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. This event, conceived of and written by Bill Richardson, centers the prolific and internationally celebrated writer's end of life. Born in Montreal in 1922, Gallant died in Paris in 2014. On the last night of the last day of the last full year of her life, alone in her apartment at age 91, she grants one last interview, this one to herself. Join us for this magnificent staging. (laughs) Oh, you applaud now. Uh, Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you very, very much for coming. Uh, to the York Theatre. And I'd like to say a very uh, special thanks to uh, the Vancouver Writers' Fest, uh, most especially Leslie Hertig, the artistic director, uh, for um, making, making this evening possible, which Leslie made possible by simple dint of saying yes. Uh, I, I met with her in, in the spring and, and said, oh, you know, centennial year of Mavis Gallant's birth and should do something, and uh, she she made it possible for, for 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 this evening and for another one that happened earlier this week. And I, I'm so much in her debt for that because uh, I, I was I was just concerned that that Mavis would go overlooked. I'm sure she would not have done, but I felt it, it felt good to be able to do my bit. I'm uh, mindful that the Vancouver Writers Fest does its work as do we all, on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. It's an honor to be here. And I want to thank uh, the festival's principal sponsor, CMHC, uh, also to acknowledge the generous participation of the Canada Council and the BC Arts Council and um, BC Heritage and, and the City of Vancouver in, in, in making the festival possible. I think I meant to, <clears throat> I meant to ask you to still your phones and to say as well that uh, afterwards there, there, there are some books for sale. Here was a good thing. Uh, over the course of the festival, it's Book Warehouse who's the, the vendor and they, they were able to um, secure lots of copies, I think of uh, Mavis Gallant's selected stories and uh, which is a great big whacking um, bible-like volume it's there uh, out front with a champagne glass and a tea light blinking somewhere 
um, and and they're, they're, they're mostly sold out, but but there are a, a few available, I think, in, in the lobby afterwards. So um, I'm going to say just a very, very few words about what's, what's about to happen here. So Mavis Galant, um, whose father was a painter and who was from very early childhood steeped in visual culture, who was a lifelong gallery goer and, and friend of artists and who was more than a little visually literate, said that her stories began with an image. So did this. The image was of an old woman, <clears throat> hungry, fevered, in need of assistance, that was not forthcoming, alone in her apartment, on New Year's Eve. Now what I did was to take that imagined situation and to lay it like a transparency on Mavis Gallant. Uh, M.G., as she's known in this play, is a fiction, but also not. Her circumstances are imagined, but the words that surround her, the, the words that I haven't supplied, are drawn from the work of Mavis Gallant or from interviews with her. It's not my intention that this be understood as a rendering in any way literal of an evening or of an event in her life. It's an act of imagination built on a foundation of fiction. The title, Her Image on the Mirror, is taken from her novella, uh, it's, it's Image on the Mirror, which was published in 1965 in her collection, My Heart is Broken. She took the title from Yeats, and I took the title from Mavis, so it's a copy of a copy of a copy. Uh, I, I, I know because the, the circumstances of her decline have been described by a number of writers after her death, and, and, and also because I, I heard tell them from her, her friends that her, her, her last years were difficult. So this image of an old woman, frail, vulnerable, was informed by biography. As, as for New Year's Eve, well, why not New Year's Eve? It's, it's, a, it's a charged time, of course. It's a ceremonial time. It's a liminal time. And it seemed appropriate to me because the Christmas season very, very often comes up in, in, in Mavis Gallant's short stories. So New Year's Eve, why not then? Uh, I, I think that's all I'll say about this. I, I, I'll, I'll let the piece speak for itself. And I feel so, so lucky, blessed to have such amazing actors on board. Uh, Gabrielle Rose, Nicola Cavendish, and Alessandro Giuliani. Now, these people are theater royalty, busy schedules, film and TV and related enterprises. But I, I can't even begin to tell you how moving I find it that artists like these with long storied careers and reputations that do not need bolstering and who are, believe you me, not doing it for the dough, still have room in their hearts for projects that are nascent and experimental and projects that are really just finding their form. Uh, to be clear, what you're going to see is a kind of workshop reading, really, and, and, and for a piece that will not have a life beyond tonight, it, it ends here. But I, I, I just, I can't tell you how touched I am that they had the, uh, the, the, the grace 
to say yes. I, I thank them from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I'm going to hang out here to read the stage directions. There aren't many of them. And I will leave the rest in their extraordinarily capable hands. Please welcome Gabrielle Rose, Nicola Cavendish, and Alessandro Giuliani. Now, I'll, I'll just say as well before we begin that there's, it, it's sort of, this is an evening of some historic importance because um, Nicola and Gabrielle came, you know, came of age in the theater around about the same time, I guess. And, and I just thought that they'd worked together on stage on many, many, many occasions. But they tell me, no, this is in fact their first time together on stage. So there we go. Thank God. <laughs> that's why I'm here right now, just to find my glasses. Why is it in the middle? Breathe the air, the same air as. I can't find my glasses. Okay, shall we see what happens? Let's go. Just a minute. December the thirty-first, twenty thirteen. I can't. Night. Mg alone in her Paris apartment, sixth arrondissement. The street is narrow, connects the uh, Rue du Cherche-Midi and the Rue du Vaugirard. Now and again, sounds of traffic from those two busy routes. The building is modern. MG was the first tenant to move in, in 1960. Small but elegant was how visiting interviewers described the apartment. Third floor, view of the street, not the courtyard. She could have had either. She chose the public view. You can see the elegance still, but frayed at the margins. Paintings are on the wall, but the ghost traces of where some have been removed. Books are in disarray. There are a few cardboard boxes ready for packing. Is someone moving? Are objects being wrapped up, stored away? Why? By whom? There's a sense of creeping decay or something like it, an imminent end. What once was cozy is becoming clinical. It's an invalid's room, a rented hospital bed, medicines, the various appurtenances of care strewn about. MG is at her table. On it, a photograph, sepia-toned, herself as a four-year-old. There's a wicker picnic hamper, too, and a hand mirror, family objects. Around her neck, she wears an oversized emergency call button. It's dark in the room, light on MG, who sits and rocks and makes the motion of writing, circling with her right hand. Two uninvited guests join her as the play begins. A disembodied voice who seems to inhabit her mirror and a misplaced ghost. They make their way to their places with their, their opening lines. It is a fugue. Their first exchange of fractured phrases and melodies should sound like an attenuated sentence. Each line or melodic fragment dovetailing. The effect should be one of almost inchoate thought spoken on a single breath. New Year's Eve, a time of reflection. About reflection, I know a thing or two. About reflection, I know more than most. Reflection has been my calling, my metier. Mm -hmm. 
the thread must hold. If you are a mirror, and I am, the thread must hold from beginning to end, and I would like... A mirror, what's more, who has spent a lifetime at one woman's beck and call. And I would like to be invisible. My story will be familiar. Should old acquaintance be forgot Our blessed lady of the looking glass And never brought to mind If you have borne witness to her triumphs and humiliations Should old acquaintance be forgot To her generosity and her peevishness And days of old anxiety If you have seen her at her polished best and her unvarnished worst the only question... Seen Tuesday's saint give bloody birth to Wednesday's bitch? For Lang Syne, my dear... The only question worth asking... For Lang Syne... If you have taken her in and given her back impartially for three quarters of a century... The only question worth asking about a story... We'll take a cup of kindness yet... Who are you when she no longer requires your services? The only question worth asking about a story is, is it dead or alive? For Dead or alive. As will happen throughout the play, the fog descends on M.G. She has six weeks left to live, and she's testing the waters of the netherworld. When this happens, she rocks slightly in her chair, in her diary from February 1954, M.G. wrote about having visited the Tate Gallery in London, mentions how much she loved a painting by Bernard Perlin called Orthodox Boys, Two Boys, Bar Mitzvah Age, Yeshiva Lads, Stand in Front of a Graffiti-Covered Wall. One holds a sacred text, Hebrew writing. The actor should think of those two boys, think of them in shul, think of them Praying, davening. She is blind. She has, what's more, set vanity aside. To what purpose, then, a mirror? I take my meaning from my work. I was not built for emptiness. What do I become if I'm not required, if I am abstracted from the need of the other? Good questions to ask in Paris, hotbed of existentialism since 1936. The ensuing ping-pong match between Mirror and Ghost has a kind of jesting, jousting, Nicholas and May, Nichols and May vibe. It's brisk, testing, a bit combative, but in a good-humored way. Neither has had much in the way of conversation for a long while. They're glad of it now. You said Paris, yes? Indeed I did. <laughs> it's not at all how I imagined it. You're quite sure? Quite, quite sure. May I know who wants to know? Oh, my name and I parted company centuries ago. Call me Ghost. How may we assist, Ghost? I'm expected, yes. I was sent by the agency. A young woman named Marie Claude typically comes on behalf of the agency, but plainly you are not she. The fact that she has always been visible and you are not gives that away. On behalf of what agency have you come? Youwantahaunt.com. Phantoms for all occasions, secular or sacred. Uh, I've come at the behest of the recently expired Linda Godby here. She requested a troubadour ghost 
to supervise and, if necessary, interrupt the New Year's Eve festivities of her husband, Morley? Morley is still among the quick? No, Morley is alive, to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. He, he made a solemn deathbed promise to my client. That would be Linda? Uh, Linda got be here, yes. He promised he would never remarry. Let me guess. An interloper has arrived on the scene. Exactly. Marie-Claude by name. Oh, Marie-Claude. Not our Marie-Claude, surely. Uh, born Rimouski, 1947? <laughs> Absolutely not. Marie-Claude? Hush, hush. MG is between worlds now, one foot in the here and now, one foot in the great unseen. She begins making a circular motion with her right hand, the motion of writing, as though she is a reporter, taking notes, transcribing for future use. Uh, Mary-Claude and Morley are dining together this evening. A beef Wellington, which was always Linda's New Year's Eve go-to, and a bottle of Chambol Musigny 2007. My assignment is to stand by and, if canoodling seems imminent, to sing your cheating heart. You can do that? No, can I? Your cheating heart will make you weep. You'll cry and cry and try to sleep. Wonderful. <laughs> I was a semifinalist on Eternity's Got Talent. Um, and so I have come here to Paris, Ontario. I, I arrived early and plenty of time to set up to a sound check and uh, so on. Yep. Ah. Uh ah ontario ontario no mm, no france fuck language france as noted paris france jesus christ i'd petition someone lower down the food chain perhaps saint christopher this is the last goddamn time i'm flying air ether to I'm their credit to they didn't smash up your guitar but they draw me in the wrong paris very few would agree with wrong. Oh, how the hell did this happen? I can't believe it. I can see how a travel agent might have become confused, what with the whole Marie-Claude and Paris coincidence. Also, there is the complicating strangeness of shared initials. Shared initials? Morley Godby here, M.G. Our blessed lady of gentle confusion is also M.G. Who's she? What is she doing, circling... Circling? Two questions, one answer. What she is is what she does. What she does is what she is. She's writing. She's a writer? She is a writer. Dead or alive? Dead or alive. The latter, my love, if only just. Would I have heard of her? The question all writers dread. Okay, I look forward to finding out more on another occasion, but if you'll excuse me, I should really no. begin. No. Pardon? Stay, ghost. <laughs> That's impossible. I Stay. Play. There will not be another occasion. Her woods are lovely, dark, and deep. I have promises to keep. Miles to go. Miles to go. Leave Morley and Marie-Claude to their own devices. Marie-Claude. Stay. Sing. <sighs> Sing what? She has been in my care and keeping for a long time. There is nothing she hasn't told me. Look into me, invisible one. You will find her there, unclouded by your own face and history. Look. Listen, she will tell you. M.G. loved music. Her tastes were Catholic, but varied. 
Ghost looks deeply into mirror, almost as though contemplating the choices on a jukebox, finds something that fits the occasion. Sing, ghost, and I will summon the necessary saints. When I am laid, am laid in earth, may my wrongs create no trouble, no trouble in thy breast. Place yourself in God's presence. Something about this voice and this text brings M.G. back. She's fully on shore now, her fire's kindled. She's ready to engage. Who goes there? Humble yourself and ask for his aid. Would I be correct in assuming this is not m Meals on Wheels? Picture your yourself, a dark city reeking with flames of sulfur and brimstone, inhabited by citizens who cannot get forth. Marie Claude, Marie Claude, she's my care worker, evening shift, a nice girl, if a bit taciturn. I've hardly heard her, never seen her. This is what comes of being blind. <laughs> being blind is what comes of living too long. When I am laid, I'm laid in earth. May my wrongs create no trouble, no trouble in thy breast. Consider the long languishing farewells your soul will say to this lower world. She will say farewell to its riches, vanities, and vain companies, and finally to her own body, which we she will leave pale, wan, emaciated, hideous, and loathsome. Definitely not Marie-Claude. She's from Tours the wellspring of the ideal French accent. Not that you'd know it from Marie-Claude, on whom I don't count for conversation. It would be very surprising if Marie-Claude were to enter the room quoting from Introduction to the Devout Life, circa 1609. The writer was St. Francis de Sales, patron saint of writers, but of course, you know all that. No trouble in thy breath. Oh, my soul, you must one day quit this body. When will it be? In winter or in summer, in town or country? Will it be suddenly or with notice by sickness or by accident? Oh, Frankie, Frankie, Frankie de Salle. Ah, laugh a minute. He was the Bishop of Geneva. I love the Swiss, always have. They're so enduringly peculiar, even more so than the Hungarians. All those languages, all those tunnels, all that chocolate and neutrality. Not to forget the clockwork. Well, what, what time is it?
so late. Mary Claude. Mary Claude. Not here. Forgot all about me. Remember me. Remember me. But I forget my fate. Music is a bomb, at least. Sing more. When I am late, I'm late in earth. May my wrongs create no trouble, no trouble in thy breast. Remember me, remember me, but I fall. Lovely. If one is going to be haunted, best it should be by a ghost who can make a silk purcell of the sow's ear of an evening. Consider above all the eternity of these pains, which above all makes hell intolerable. And if there must be a disembodied voice, why not one acquainted with improving texts of Swiss origin? Alas! If a slight pain or the heat of a little fever makes one short night seem so long and tedious, how terrible will be the night of eternity with so many torments. A talking mirror? My goodness. Well, not without precedent. Tennyson, anyone? M.G. was a lifelong reader of poetry. It was her habit to begin her mornings with it. She listens avidly to Mirror and Ghost when they recite this old favorite, and she's eager to chime in. She lives with little joy or fear <gasps> over the water running near. The sheep bell tinkles in her ear before her hangs a mirror-clear reflecting towered Camelot. And as the mazy web she whirls, she sees the surly village churls and the red cloaks of market girls pass onward from Shalott. Sometimes a troop of damsels glad, an abbot on an ambling pad, sometimes a curly shepherd lad. Or long-haired page in crimson clad goes by to towered Camelot. And sometimes through the mirror blue the knights come riding two and two. She hath no loyal knight and true. Oh, the lady of Shalott. Poetry. I never had to work to memorize it. Verses stuck to me like barnacles to a hull. They sneak up on me still when something unexpected completes a circuit. A poem remembered is a light in the storm, a charm against the forces of the dark. Not that I impute any ill intent to you, my uninvited guests, my merry revenants. Accustomed as I am to ghosts, I always think a haunting is more a cause for inquiry than concern. Should the situation go the way of the monkey's paw, I have this attractive pendant. Here it is, you can all see, yes, imagined and otherwise. I press the button here. Yes, 
somewhere an alarm klaxons and someone comes running possibly an exorcist <laughs> it's very much a lost resource and a last resource this being France and the French being the French I'm sure all kinds of penalties would be enforced for misuse it doesn't matter for my present company I feel no threat my only irritation is the unassailable hunger uninvited guests are you peckish perhaps there might be something like a, a viable sandwich lying about do you see anything that speaks of sandwich? Not too rigid, not too limp? Uh, I haven't touched solid food since 1347. You suppose there's anything in that picnic hamper? That was her father's. He brought it from England in 1921. She saw him for the last time on her 10th birthday. He vanished, became one of her most persistent ghosts. The hamper was all that remained, a requiry at first, and then a repository for her manuscripts. You won't find a sandwich there. No sandwich. And no champagne either. A pity. Two more hours till Paris erupts. Paris by night, Paris on New Year's Eve. She's always loved this time of year. Oh, no need to speak of me in the third person. I'm right here. And you're correct. I have always loved Christmas time. It's true, you did. I do. No need for the past tense either. Any close reader of your stories will know that many have Christmas settings. You make me sound like the Clement Moore of the left bank. That's never been the sort of thing to which I, I paid much mind. The themes and settings of my own work. Where does it come from? What does it mean? These are questions I can't abide. That kind of speculation belongs to the scholars. You're not a scholar, are you? Far from it. Then you're still welcome. If I could see, and if I could move, I would find for you a story called New Year's Eve. Oh, I'd like to hear that. Look into me, ghost. You'll find her words. Ghost looks deep into mirror, finds what he needs to know. New Year's Eve, one of the 116 stories M.G. published in The New Yorker. It appeared in the edition of January the 10th, 1970, set not in Paris, but in Moscow. On New Year's Eve, the plumbers took Amabel to the opera. Whatever happens tonight happens every day for a year, said Amabel, feeling secure because she had a plumber on either side. Colonel Plummer's car had broken down that afternoon. He'd got his wife and their guest punctually to the Bolshoi Theater through a storm in a bootleg taxi. Now he discovered from his program the opera was neither of those that they had been promised. His wife leaned across Amabel and said, well, which is it? She could not read any Russian and would not try. Fun fact, I studied Russian in Montreal during the war, a few night classes at McGill. Oh, the sum total of my post-secondary education. She must have known it would take him minutes to answer, for she sat back, settled a width of gauzy old shawl on her neck, 
and began telling Amabel the relative sizes of the Bolshoi and some concert hall in Vancouver the girl had never heard of. It's one of three stories in which I mention Vancouver. A minor footnote, but nothing wins over an audience more than pandering to hometown pride. Hello, Vancouver! Are you having a good time tonight? Let's have a song! Faut-il nous quitter sans espoir, sans espoir de retour? Faut-il nous quitter sans espoir de nous revoir un jour? For all anxiety, my dear, for all anxiety, we'll take a cup of kindness yet. For all anxiety, a cup of kindness, a loving cup. Let's have some champagne. In the time of her prime, there was always champagne. Shall we have some champagne? Champagne was unfailingly on hand. No champagne? Our blessed lady of the bubbles. Is this an emergency? Shall I press the button? They'll send someone from Switzerland, perhaps. Saint Bernard with a brimming flask. Shall I? Shall I? MG loses the frequency, slips between stations. She begins her slow davening like a child on a rocking horse. Way down yonder in the meadow lies a poor little lamby. Bees and butterflies pecking at his eyes. Poor little thing is crying, Mammy. Hush a don't you cry. Go to sleepy little baby. When you wake, you shall have all the pretty little horses, blacks and bays. Dapples and greys, coach and six white horses. hush a don't you cry. Go to sleepy little baby. That was well-chosen, ghost. Hmm. It, it simply came to me. I, I can't say from where or why. Not my usual line, a bit sentimental. I think it was intended to move things along, a segue, which is the peristalsis of plot. The point is, M.G. loved horses, she used to play the ponies, loved to bet on the races at Longchamp. To casinos, she was not a stranger. At cards, she was adept in more ways than one. In those days, I was always looking for signs. This is what she wrote in her story, When We Were Nearly Young. I saw signs in cigarette smoke, in the way the ash fell, and in the cards. I laid the cards out three times a week on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday were no good because the cards were mute and evasive. And on Sundays, they lied. I saw inside my eyelids at night the nine of clubs, which is an excellent card, and the ten of hearts, which is better, morally speaking, since it implies gain through effort. I saw the aces of clubs and diamonds and the jack of diamonds, who is the postman. When she was 27, a young divorcee, her father long dead, her mother estranged, she considered her cards. At work, a weekly paper called the Montreal Standard, where her future in features was foreseeably insured, someone spoke to her about the promise of a pension. Her heart froze. 
Security was the worm in the bud of ambition. What she had in mind was not a pension, but a pension. I wanted to live in Paris. I wanted to write fiction. And I wanted to live on it and in it. She reshuffled the deck, laid the cards on the table next to the picnic hamper where she kept her stories. The ones she wrote for no one but herself. The ones she wrote after hours, the fruit of her moonlighting. She chose one, sent it to the New Yorker. Why aim for the middle when your crosshairs can just as easily accommodate the heights? An editor named Mildred Wood pulled it from the slush pile, read it, and wrote back. Not this. Send another. The morning of Madeline Farr's 17th birthday, Mrs. Tracy awoke remembering she had forgotten to order a cake. It was doubtful this would matter to Madeline, who would probably make a point of not caring. But it does matter to me, Mrs. Tracy thought, Observances are important, and it is, after all, my house. Madeline's birthday was the first of many yeses. On the strength of this one good sign, she emptied the hamper of her stories and poems and journals. In her rented house was a fireplace. She fed them to the flames. The publisher of her newspaper gave her $500, a personal gift. A friend at TransCanada Air gave her a one-way ticket to London. In 1950... A mid-century modern, newly turned 28, and bent on laying an unassailable claim to the title of writer before she turned 30, she left. Young was her family name. When she stopped being young, she became gallant. To be gallant was the lasting gift of her short marriage. A musical name, an Acadian name. She was a daughter of a law-in-law of Evangeline Eyes wide open, the future as readable as the pack of cards in her pocket, the smoke of her past still acrid in her nostrils. She stepped willingly into exile. Un Acadien errant, banni de ses foyers. Un Acadien errant, banni de ses foyers. Parcourait en pleurant des pays étrangers. Parcourait en pleurant des pays étrangers. Un jour triste et pensif, assis au bord des flots. Un jour triste et pensif, assis au bord des flots. Au courant fugitif, il adressa ces mots. Au courant fugitif, Il adressa ces mots Si tu vois mon pays, mon pays malheureux Si tu vois mon pays, mon pays malheureux Va dire à mes amis que je me souviens d'eux Va dire à mes amis que je me souviens d'eux Au jour si plein d'appât, non, vous êtes disparu. Au jour si plein d'appât, non, vous êtes disparu. Et mon pays, hélas, je ne le verrai plus. Et mon pays, hélas, je ne le verrai plus. As Ghost sings, M.G. emerges from her trance, listens at the song's end. She quickly closes her eyes like a child caught out 
after faking a nap while listening to grown-ups gossip. I spy with my little eyes someone playing possum. I thought it best I find a discreet way to retire during that too long expository exchange. Clumsy. Were I a dramaturge, I'd have had a word with the writer. I'd, I have said, um, find a reason to send her off stage, possibly in search of a snack, somewhere beyond the fourth wall. How did you know I was pulling the wool over my own eyes? How long have I lived with you? For most of my 91 years. How do I look, by the way? Immutable. Flatterer. An unchanging monument. <laughs> oh, liar. Liar, pants on fire. You who showed me my first wrinkle, my first gray hair. Mirror, mirror in my hand. Who's the fairest in the land? You are my queen. Oh, mirror, mirror, polish, spit. That is such a crock of shit. I was being tactful. One acquires diplomatic skills after a lifetime of giving back, giving back, constantly giving back. Has it been so one-sided? Have I got, uh, not provided you with employment, a, a raison d'etre? I have given you what all intimates of all writers long for and fear, a place in my pages. Julius was in the kitchen with a glass of wine in his hand, and he stood sipping it in front of a mirror deep in silent conversation. An alien flower. One of my German stories. I was fond of them, though they did nothing to mitigate my reputation for being abstruse, a difficult writer, I was called, even by my editors. What a good time you and I are having, he might have been saying. He smiled and his face went wry. Oh, you know how it is sometimes, he might have said now. He was seducing someone in the mirror, only it was himself. Julius was watching Julius seducing Julius. I speak on behalf of mirrors everywhere when I say that that is simply creepy. I wrote the world as I saw the world, creeps and all. It's always been the business of creeps to act creepily and never my business to pretend otherwise. If sanitizing is what you want, best consign yourself to the care of a femme de menage. If you can track down such a creature, good help is getting harder and harder to find. Mary Claude. Where is she? She looked like a burned out child who'd been told a ghost story. Desperately seeking the waiter, she turned to the cafe behind them and saw the last light of the long afternoon strike the mirror above the bar, a flash in a tunnel, hands juggling with fire. That unexpected play at a remove, born indoors, displayed to anyone who could stare without blinking was a complete story. It was a brightness on the looking glass, the only part of a life or a love or a promise that could never be concealed, changed, or corrupted. The Muslim wife. That was well done, if I do say so myself. Unimpeachable. You could spend hours with that on the dissecting table. 
It appeared in The New Yorker in 1976. It's a story men reliably enjoy. Don't ask me why. Perhaps I should have sold it to Argosy or Field and Stream. She saw herself in a long glass in the long, loose, butterfly-covered nightdress. She looked like a pale rose model in a fashion magazine. Neat, sweet, a porcelain figure intended to suggest that it suffices to be desirable. But the dream of love is preferable to love in life. Green water, green sky. You had to drag deep to haul that corpse from the river. Green water, green sky. You had to drag deep to haul that corpse from the river. Just what I was about to say. (laughs) One of your two novels. Your publishers were always pleading for more. Oh, those tiresome wheedlers. A novel is not a dog that comes when you whistle and write them to what end. Nothing in the sales figures suggested there was an urgent hunger in the land for a novel from my pen. But without green water, green sky, Sylvia Plath might never have written The Bell Jar. Well, that is an example of an absurd opinion. It is widely held. By whom? Scholars. Well, they are a plague worse than locusts. (laughs) They say you provided the template. Purveyors of nonsense, ivory towers, hamsters, spinning the treadmill of tenure. A mother, a daughter, a descent into madness. Writing is a hall of mirrors inside a whispering gallery. No one sits down to write without a brain bursting with what one's read. She mentioned you in her journal, says she looked up to you. You are a pillar of fire worth following. The waste, the waste. Why did she not reach out to me? I was here in Paris in this very apartment in that killing winter of 1963, the coldest in a hundred years. I remember how every breath became a paralytic phantom, how the vapor seemed to crystallize and, and shatter like a bad luck mirror. I remember mothers and and children warming their hands on the hot cones they'd buy from the chestnut sellers. It was the winter we thought would never end, the winter that erased the possibility of spring. The winter she banked towels around the door of the room where her babies were sleeping, then knelt in the kitchen, and unbearable to think of, I could have helped her, could have told her about charms against treacherous men and cannibalistic mothers. I could have helped her find another way to make her legend. Mimi, Violetta, Butterfly, Tosca. Why does the heroine always die? Charlotte Mew, Virginia Woolf, Anne Sexton, Sylvia, too sad, too sad, too much. Too much. Marie Claude. Marie Claude. Dead or alive. Where can she? Schlafe, schlafe, holde süße Knaben. Leise weg dicht deiner Mutter Hand. Sag
In the German tongue in the Polish town, scraped flat by the rollers of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common. My Polak friend says there are a dozen or two. So I could never tell where you put your foot, your root. I never could talk to you. The tongue stuck in my jaw. It's stuck in a barbed wire snare. Ich, 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 ich. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you and the language obscene. An engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew. A Jew to Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. It is eerie. It is haunting how Sylvia Plath's most celebrated poem, Daddy, speaks to Our Lady's project. She came to Europe from Montreal in 1950 when the continent was still smoldering, was apocalyptic rubble. She was the French-speaking child of an English father and a Canadian mother with a German bloodline and Russian, Romanian, Jewish antecedents. Access an ally in one compact package. She wanted to see for herself the possibility of atrocity, wanted to understand how humans could fall, could do what they did to other humans made of the very same blood, viscera, bone. It was an investigation that absorbed her her whole working life, that began even before the war ended in a gray, oppressive office on the other side of the Atlantic. One thing you truly cannot imagine is what the first concentration camp pictures were for someone my age. When the first pictures arrived in Canada, I was 22 working on a newspaper. The art director called me into his office. He had all this stuff. You couldn't believe it. You can't imagine the first time seeing them. I kept saying, we're dreaming. This isn't real. We're in a nightmare. You couldn't believe it. The Standard had decided to put out a special issue. I was to write what went under the pictures and a little information of 750 words. I did this at home. I can see those pictures to this day spread on my table. Now, imagine being 22, being the intensely left-wing political romantic I was, passionately anti-fascist, having believed that a new kind of civilization was going to grow out of the ruins of the war, out of victory over fascism, and having to write the explanation of something I did not myself understand. I thought, there must be no descriptive words in this, no adjectives, nothing like horror or horrifying, because what the pictures are saying is stronger and louder. It must be kept simple. What I wrote and thought at 22, I think and believe now. I wrote then that the victims the survivors, that is, would probably not be able to tell us anything, except for the description of life at point zero. If we wanted to find out how and why this happened, it was the Germans we had to question. There was hardly a culture or a civilization I would have placed as high as the German. But what the picture said was that neither culture nor civilization nor art nor Christianity had been a retaining wall. Why not? What had happened? 
What had happened to the people who had produced Bach and Goethe, who had been singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God since the Renaissance? How could a nation like that one drop to zero so quickly and easily? All that I knew or felt looking at those pictures was that we had to find out from the Germans themselves what had gone wrong. I'm putting this very crudely now, don't misunderstand me. The victims, the survivors that is, could tell us what had happened to them, but not why. The why was desperately important to people like myself, who were 22 and had to live with this shambles. What I wrote, I need hardly tell you, wasn't run. Nothing was said to me. I wasn't asked to rewrite it. When I read the special issue, all I could see was the adjectives and the adverbs smothering the real issue. And the covering article, which was short, was a prototype for all the cliches we've been bludgeoned with ever since. I must tell you that I was very spoiled and not used to having my copy tampered with, let alone thrown out. I did ask what had happened. I was told that I was obviously completely crazy and the editors had never read such crap in their lives, which may have been true. One man said to me, culture? Our readers never went to high school and you're talking about culture? All the Germans are bastards and that's that. But that wasn't that and it still isn't. I went home and wrote in my journal, that is how it's going to be. Oh. Mary Claude? Mary Claude? Where is she? Mary Claude, I need your help. I want, I want my... Mary Claude, I want my book, my notebook, the one I, where I write my dreams. She's always been an avid dreamer, an onuric adept. Is, is it beside the, the bed? In the hamper. For most of her life, she kept a detailed account of what she saw night after night on the screens of her shuttered eyes, the Fellini unfurling of a Freudian festival. Alliteration is literature's cheap perfume. Agreed. I will speak it before I forget it. I was on a roof, balancing on the steep peak and looking down on the narrow streets of what I took to be a, a ghetto, the Warsaw Ghetto. I simply understood it to be that, that inexplicable knowing that dreams allow. I said out loud, it's a Chagall painting. I'm in, in a painting by Chagall. It might have been worse, it might have been Dolly. I can't abide Dolly. And I saw a woman coming towards me over the nearby rooftops, walking from one to the other as though it was no more than stepping from the curb to the sidewalk as improbably and as easily as Jesus walking over the waters. She was playing the violin and I thought, it is my mother, it must be my mother. And I called out to her, make it talk, can you make it talk? Just as I did to my mother when I was a little girl and she would play the violin some evenings, those rare evenings when she was in a good mood and I would beg her, make it talk, make it talk. And she would. And I would ask, what is it saying? What is it saying? And she would answer, it says it's time for you to go to bed. And I would say, no, it doesn't. And we would laugh and laugh. She came closer, one roof to the next, to the next. 
she began to change. Her skin sloughed off and she looked exactly like the devil. Not just any devil, but Satan himself who came up to me once when I was a little girl and told me to step into traffic. And no one believed me when I tried to and was almost killed. It was Satan, I said. But they spanked me anyway, punished me for doing what Satan wanted and would have allowed. My mother was Satan and I stepped back and I fell from the roof but in slow motion, past so many windows and so many scenes being enacted in them, some of them delightful, some appalling to view. I was inches from the pavement when there came a pealing of bells and I woke and, and, Mary Claude, Mary Claude, bring me my notebook and my dictionary of dreaming too, a dream of falling. What does it mean? Gravity was never any woman's friend. Hmm. In that part of me where once I had a heart, I feel a kind of breaking. She is our blessed lady of the hard re-entry. Mary Claude, have you found the book? Would that be the Handbook of Dream Analysis by Emile A. Gutil, M.D., Grove Press, New York, 1939? Yes, yes, that's the... Mary Claude... Unlike you to provide a complete bibliographic citation. Page 220, Falling Dreams. These dreams occur frequently and usually are attended by strong anxiety. Falling is a loss of equilibrium and may be interpreted as loss of temper, loss of self-control, falling down from the accepted moral standard. Falling in dreams of women may signify intercourse. We speak of fallen women, meaning morally fallen. Decidedly not. Marie Claude. Who are? Ask pardon and cast yourself at the feet of your Lord, like a prodigal son, like a Magdalene, or like a woman that has defiled her marriage bed with all sorts of adulteries. Frankie de Salle, of course. It's all coming back to me now. New Year's Eve. Oh, my uninvited guests, ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm, wrong side of the looking glass. Welcome to Frankie de Salle and the singing ghost. Formons de nos mains qui s'enlacent de clins de ce jour. Formons de nos mains qui s'enlacent une chaîne d'amour. Ce n'est que nos revoirs, mes frères, ce n'est que nos revoirs. Oui, nous nous reverrons, mes frères, ce n'est que nos revoirs. As Ghost sings, M.G. revives herself. Her own spirits come to the fore. In six weeks, she will step into mystery. We'll know whatever there is to know of what waits in store. But for now, life lives in her. Her argumentative, her disputatious, her inquiring mind can still find its moorings. Pretty, though it loses some of the charm of the original in translation. That's a good word, translation. It applies not just to text, but to the flesh and the spirit as well. The translation of one or to the other. Who are you, ghost? 
Who were you, I mean to ask? I, I'm slightly concerned that you might be the ectoplasmic ambassador of the missing Mary Claude. Did something tragic befall her that led to her translation? Oh, no, I think not. Marie Claude has many admirable qualities, but knowledge of the songs of Robbie Burns is not among them. And were she to no longer among the quick, she wouldn't hang around here, but would hurry on home to Tours. I feel quite sure. Tours, famous for the purity of its accent and also for its outstanding cuisine. Oh, mon Dieu, que j'ai femme. Uh, if I'm going to shuffle off this mortal coil, let it not be on New Year's Eve, and let it not be of starvation. If only I could see, if only I could hoist myself up, I'm sure I could find some morsel this damn arthritis, this osteoporosis punishment, for I know not what sin. I have endured, I have continued to work, as did Colette. It was her affliction too. Her hand finally frozen into a painful grip, the frozen posture of a writer. The last time I saw her, she was completely bent over like a hairpin. <gasps> like a hairpin? Oh, this is in reference to Colette. To yourself, I'm sorry to say. Like a hairpin? Who had the temerity? Edmund White. Edmund White? He whose name graces the title page of the joy of gay sex? And many other texts differently but equally edifying. Bent over like a hairpin. I would never stoop so low. Her own writing is true, is a masterclass in metaphor. Look deep, ghost, what do you see? The following collection of metaphors and similes, a miscellany of equivalencies, should be treated with a kind of delight and surprise, like opening a steamer trunk and finding it full of entertaining oddments and curios. Doris was proud of her education, a bundle of notions, she trundled before her like a pram containing twins. He looked like a runaway child who'd been found in a coal bin and was now being taken home against his will. His face was as bright as if he was reciting a list of virtues. My future son-in-law looked like a terrier, peering from one large human to the other, wondering who would slip him a morsel of something good. She showed him frontier posts looped with rusted wire like birthday ribbons. Her ribbon was askew like a frayed birthday wrapping. He arrived on her doorstep looking as if he had spent his life in the rain waiting for a London bus. Her intestines were of almost historical importance. Soothed with bismuth, restored with charcoal, they were still as nothing to her stomach, in which four-course meals remained for days, undigested, turning over and over, like clothes forgotten in a tumble dryer. Bonnie's heart was a big floppy cushion in which her loved ones were forever sticking needles and pins. She came into their lives dragging her existence like a wet raincoat. She was dressed in a bathrobe that looked like a dark parachute. 
She remembered the philosophy of self-sacrifice she had preached and that still moped in a corner of their lives like a poor melting bird. She would have smothered if she could this old projection of herself, but it remained indestructible as the animal witness in a fairy tale. She viewed me at close range as if I were a novel she had to translate. I felt as if warm ashes were banked around my heart like a residue of good intentions. She had imagined dying would be like a slow anesthetic. She thought death could be inhaled like fresh air. But it was like a black cloak being blown down on one, she told me. Like a cape slipping off a hook and falling in soft folds over your hands and face. Literature is a boat to cross the river with. I have lived in writing like a spoonful of water in a river. Which river? So many. The Chautauqua River, which was the river of my childhood against which all other rivers were measured. I used to imagine Cleopatra floating down the Chautauqua, and I looked for mermaids there until I was nine. Then, of course, the St. Lawrence, as with any Montrealer, and the Hudson, the East River, and the Thames, the Vistula, the Spree, the Molda, Molda, the Moldau, and the Dawn have had their turn. The Rhine, yes, the Rhine, very often. And the Seine, of course, most often of all. Oh, the Seine, the never-ending, ever-changing, freely-flowing Seine. I miss the Seine. The grey surge of the Seine, the boats and barges on the Seine, the fishermen along the Seine, and the lovers, too, entwined in one another's arms on all those benches all along the Seine. And yes, the smell of the Seine, that alluring amalgam of mud and mould and diesel and whatever is hanging in the air. Chestnuts roasting or chestnuts flowering or acacias. I miss the smell, and I miss the bridges too. Pont Saint-Louis, Pont Marie, Pont Neuf, Pont Royal, Pont Pont, Pont Pont, Pont Pont. Quelque chose, I could have named them all. Once upon a time. Oh, 37? On a good day. And if there was money on the table, yes, I think so. I'm sorry I'll never again have the pleasure of crossing it. Not under my own steam. The sin. So much is forgotten. So much has been washed away. But I remember the sin on the day I arrived here. My first day in Paris, October 1950. I went to a hotel just around the corner from here. The room was all red velvet, not very clean. I unpacked and I went for a walk. I had a large map of Paris in my apartment in Montreal, pasted on my wall. I studied the metro stops and all that. I set out from my hotel down to the Seine. A French sailor came over and asked for a direction in French and I was able to give it to him. I said, go back across the bridge and there you'll find the metro. I said it in French, of course. Said it as if I'd lived here forever. I was so proud. The Seine. <gasps> Do you remember an American in Paris? 
Gene Kelly, Leslie Caron. Fun fact, I love musicals. To this I can attest. Mm, I lost my tolerance after haunting a seven-year run of Phantom of the Opera. Do you remember that scene by the Seine where Gene sings not very well, our love is here to stay, and he and Leslie dance? I bet there were lovers dancing on the banks of the Seine tonight. Perhaps that's where Marie-Claude has landed. Marie-Claude. Marie-Claude. Dead or alive. Sing, ghost, pull her back. It's very clear. Our love is here to stay. You're a good ghost. Not for a year, but ever and a day. <sighs> the radio and the telephone, and the movies that we know, may just be passing fancies that in time may go. But oh, my dear, our love is here to stay. Together we're going a long, long way. In time the Rockies may crumble, Gibraltar may tumble, oh, but they're only made of clay, oh. But our love is here, oh, our love is here. Our love is here to stay. Oh. You are a good guest, ghost. I hope you won't think it rude of me or indiscreet if I ask your intentions. Are you, like love, here to stay? I, I wonder because, to speak candidly, I feel I have a prior claim insofar as haunting rights are concerned. And it can't be long before I'll be in a position to exercise them. Who are you, ghost? I dreamed of my mother, who was musical like you. Were my present situation susceptible to logic or analysis? I might wonder if it is her spirit who's come to call. But that cannot be. Were Benedictine in the room, there would be an unbearable chill. I was four when my mother took me to a convent school and left me there without any explanation. I was wearing my best dress, a beautiful blue dress. The mother superior said, you won't be allowed to keep that dress here. Then my mother went away and didn't come back. She left me sitting on a chair, a hard chair in the foyer. I'll be back in a minute, she said. But that minute went on for very many days. I remember how in the bath we wore little rubbery clothes so we couldn't see ourselves. And the apron was tied around your waist and then around your neck. I had no one to help me with my clothes. And at four, you really need help. You do. You do need help at four. And the help you need at 91 is not so far removed. If I thought that I could press the button on my oh-so-attractive medallion and that someone would break down the door with an axe and help me untie the Gordian knot of my mother and father, then I would risk the wrath of the authorities and summon the genie. 
Sunday, January 5th, 1992. Ghost, have you found my diary? Are you going to make me listen to it? Perhaps you are my mother after all. She was an inveterate opener of drawers and picker of locks. On tonight's TV, three tragic brothers, middle-aged, released from solitary confinement in Moroccan jails, arrive in Paris. Their cells were so cramped, the ceilings so low, that after 18 years, two of them are bent and shrunken in wheelchairs. The third, a shell of a man now, but still upright, is tenderly cared for by his beautiful 24-year-old daughter. She is a triumphant image of love and happiness. They share the traditional epiphany galette, and she places the gold cardboard crown on his head, making him one of the three kings from the east. He pushed back locks of dark hair the wind has blown across her face, quite clearly accepting the day as a miracle. I think she is lucky. She has found him. And I imagine my father returned to me suddenly and how impossible it is, even as imagining. And I break down. Oh, not because of self-pity, but a rush of feeling from a deep pool of grief. I stand in the kitchen and drink cold water to stop the tears and say, how deep is it? Is it an automatic reaction set off by the sight of that other reunion? I can't measure the difference I can't measure the difference, but I understand the wound is profound and has been covered over but never healed. I see myself at 13, wearing my school uniform, the pleated serge tunic, the running shoes and the long black stockings, my heart lurching as I hear, don't you know he's dead? No, I believed what I'd been told when I was 10 that he was in England and would send for me. But I changed schools and places, and I was afraid he would never find me. He never returned. Years later, I read something Isaac Babel's daughter wrote in a preface, something like, every time a car stopped in front of the door, I expected to see my father step out of it. But of course, he never did. You do not do you do not do any more black shoe, in which I have lived like a foot for 30 years, scarcely daring to breathe or at you. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You, bef you died before I had time. Midnight is approaching. MG is exhausted physically. Emotionally, her guests are starting to shed their benignity. They are wearing out their welcome. What began as a genial haunting is turning into something more macabre and threatening, a kind of otherworldly home invasion. Her civility is being tested. Anger is a fuel. As the scene progresses, MG grows less and less compliant. If this were a musical score, it would be marked Sempre più agitato. When I am laid, am laid in earth, may my wrongs create no trouble, no trouble in thy breast. 
We have heard that ghost. Place yourself in the presence of God. Frankie DeSalle, I do not need or want you here tonight. Shoo, get out of my mirror. Beseech him to inspire you by his grace. I would rather beseech him to bring us champagne. Be gone. Imagine yourself to be in extreme sickness, lying on your deathbed without any hope of recovery. Surely there are better, grander mirrors to which you could stake your claim. Versailles is full of them. Why not Freud's mirror, the one he angled, so his patients saw not him, but their own reflections? As the dawn brightens, we see more clearly in the mirror the spots and soils on our face, so as the inward light of the Holy Ghost more and more illumines our consciences, we see more plainly and distinctly the sins which hinder us. No trouble in thy breast. Two different faces. If you take a photograph and cover the right half and then the left and compare, you'll see her eyes change from mocking to inquisitive. I am blind, Dr. Freud. I could not in your mirror any more than I could in my own play a game of compare and contrast. If I could, I would read in my eyes the healed and the incapacitated, the whole and the damaged. I have made my life, I have made my name. I am a person complete, but my father's vanishing act and my mother's chill indifference are wounds beyond cauterizing. Remember me. Dr. Freud, there is nothing I despise more than pity. Remember me. Offer me no easy reassurances, Herr Doctor. Don't tell me it's the damage that made me, that I have built my cities on so shaky a foundation as the longing for approval. The enemies of the soul lie in wait for her at the narrow passage of death to seize and devour her. I told you to get out, get out, get out! But I forget my faith. Independence, autonomy, agency. I got what I wanted and none of it was easily won. Time is passing away. Death is approaching nearer. See how he mocks you? To make peace with that part of the past. To settle matters with my ghosts. No one helped me claim my land back from the sea. I did it alone. But this one leak, I cannot... Mary Claude. Desire not things which are at a great distance. It's very clear. Our love is here to stay. Mary Claude. Do not desire things which cannot happen for a long time. Not for a year, but ever and. Mary Claude. Do not desire. Oh, I desire. Only not to be forgotten. Remember me. Not to be forgotten and not to be alone. But I forget my faith. Not to have phantom voices for my only company, not on New Year's Eve, not on any day, however many remain. Not many remain, not many dead or 
Marie-Claude. Be urgent with God to give you a happy death by the merits of that of his son, our father. Make a nosegay of myrrh. You make a nosegay of myrrh. Make it in hell and go there now. By the all powers of all the saints and all the seraphim, I command you to leave my mirror and leave my room. I will not have you here. Mary Claude, I will not have you here. Look, see what I hold in my hand. It is sharper than the sharpest sword. I have only to press this button. All manner of avenging angels will come to my aid. Some with axes, some with horses, all in stylish hats. Mary Claude, do you think I won't? The Rockies may tumble, Gibraltar may crumble. Out flew the web and floated with the Mirror cracked. From side to side, the curses come upon me, cried the Lady of Shalott. Daddy, Daddy, you bastard, I'm through. Someone will come. You will see. Someone will come. You will see. Someone will come. She is almost at the end. She has strength enough to muster one last rally of resistance. Hush. Do not tell me to hush. I will not finish with a whimper. Not with a whimper. Not with a whimper. Mary Claude. Hush. Mary Claude. Hush. Mary Claude, Mary Claude, Mary Claude. She turned her back and left the sea behind. At last she was going in the right direction. She rode Chief, her pony, between an alley of trees. Nearby, somebody smiled. She held herself straight. She was perfect. Everyone smiled now. Everyone was pleased. She emerged in silence from the little wood and came off chief, her pony, and into her father's arms. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Papa's gonna buy you a mockingbird. Oh, Mary Claude. She gives in. She retreats. As ghost and mirror sing a lullaby, she begins to rock. Her body is her cradle. The bow has broken. And if that mockingbird don't sing, Papa's gonna buy you a diamond ring. Should old acquaintance be forgot? And if that diamond ring is brass, Papa's gonna buy you a looking glass. And never brought to mind. And if that looking glass gets broke, Papa's gonna buy you a billy coat. Should old acquaintance be forgot? And if that billy coat don't pull, Papa's gonna buy you a cart and bull. And days of old lang syne. Slowly as they sing, mirror and ghost rise, turn and step back. Lights begin to fade, except on MG rocking. 
And if that card and bull turn over, Papa's gonna buy you a dog called Rover. For old Lang Syne, my dear. And if that dog called Rover don't bark, Papa's gonna buy you a horse and cart. For old Lang Syne. And if that horse and cart turn round, You'll still be the sweetest little baby in town. We'll take a cup of kindness yet. You'll still be the sweetest little baby in town. For old Lang Syne. Ghost and mirror turn. Consider M.G. rocking. Midnight, M.G. steadies, she raises her head, looks into the light, as loud as possible. Mary Claude! Dark. You have been listening to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers' Fest. To hear more events like this one, please visit our website at writersfest.bc.ca.